Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hi, uh, thanks for turning up. Um, the, the talk we're going to give to you today is really looking at uh, an aspect of, of history in that we're trying to look at the way in which ancient life has shaped Britain and how uh, and the animals that have lived in, in ancient Britain in the past. But rather than using the, the normal body fossils and bones and shells that you'd do to do this, we're looking really at the, at the trackways and footprints uh, like these uh, two dinosaur footprints here uh, from the south coast in Hastings, which we'll, we'll talk about towards the end of the, uh, the session today. Um, trackways and footprints have been known from uh, rocks for, for a long time. They've been recognised in rocks for a long time. Um, and until a couple of hundred years ago, features like these, these are both from the Cedric Museum in Cambridge, two footprints from the, uh, the Triassic of Cheshire, um, there was often a biblical kind of explanation for these sort, okay? So the, uh, they were thought often to be the, the handprints of sinners that had drowned in Noah's flood, or uh, in this church here in Bebbington on the Wirral, the inside of the church is lined with these uh, slabs that contain these trackways on there, and they were thought to be the, uh, the footprints of devils that couldn't get in through the actual porch door. So uh, these are the old kind of terms, the ways in which people looked at these trackways. Um, and we'll give you a much more modern perspective, but before we do that, one of, the, one of the useful things to talk about is how we got to the point we're looking at now, where we, where we know these are the trackways of animals. And again, this is from the, uh, the collection in Cambridge. It's a, it's a slightly older trackway where you see these two little pairs of feet of a small animal. Um, and these were collected in the 1820s by a, uh, a vicar in Dumfries called Henry Duncan. He recognised these things from, this, from a quarry as being the trackways of of ancient animals. He said they were tortoises, um, but he wasn't really believed. People thought they were, they were mineral structures. So he sent them off to um, uh, William Buckland, who was a the professor of geology at Oxford, professor of geology and mineralogy, who'd recently discovered uh, a large number of Ice Age uh, body fossils, hyenas and so on, uh, and had become renowned for that. That's where this caricature has come from. It's uh, contemporary to the time. Um, and Buckland didn't believe they were trackways either, so he, uh, he, he assembled a, great, a, a series of different uh, geologists, uh, great and the good geologists from the time, and performed an experiment where they basically took pastry and put tortoises walking over wet pastry. And this is a, a letter from the 1820s uh, describing what happened. Uh, the, the crux of it basically is that uh, Buckland was acting as master of ceremonies uh, and he couldn't get the tortoises to move. So... Uh, <laughs> He endeavoured to move them using sundry flips of his fingers on their tails, uh, and eventually it turned out they were, they were so stuck to the pie crust they weren't moving, <laughs> so he ended up employing a rolling pin. <laughs> and it's not clear how, but at the end it says that it's, uh, it worked okay, and, the, uh, and people were satisfied that these were left behind by, by ancient animals. Okay? Um, and then this paper came out shortly afterwards describing these in a more scientific way, albeit still being footprints left before the flood. Um, so, yeah, so what we're going to do is, is, is take you through some of the, uh, the more modern uh, things we know about these trace fossils, these trackways. And Anthony will tell you what these are now. Yeah, so we're going to try and avoid using too much unnecessary geological terminology today. But something that's going to keep cropping up again and again is this term trace fossils. And they're different from body fossils that you might be more familiar with, which are parts of the animal. These are kind of fossilized behavior, if you want. So trace fossils are useful compared to body fossils for a few different reasons. Firstly, they're physical structures, so they can only really be destroyed by physical means, whereas body fossils, they can be eaten by other animals when they're decaying. They can be destroyed chemically if they're in an acidic or an alkaline environment that's not suitable for them. Or again, they can be destroyed physically. They can be eroded away, just like the trace fossils can. So trace fossils, once they've been made, they tend to stick around. And what we're seeing here are a range of different trace fossils. We're seeing footprints and burrows of different animals that we found in the UK. So in the top left here, we're seeing some crab tracks from Devon, about 350 million years old. Here we're seeing some shrimp burrows in the middle from Dorset. We've got some small kind of mammal footprints from Cheshire. We're seeing these dinosaur footprints here. We can see the three toes, again, you saw on the first slide and you see more of later on. 
And then we've got these worm burrows here from something feeding on the sediment. So now, Neil's going to give a brief overview of the geology of Britain and how it fits in with the traces that we're looking at. Well, very, very brief. Uh, basically, the, uh, uh, many of you will know a lot of the, the different periods that are, are named in the UK, but we're not going to, what we're going to do for each of the slides in the top corner, we'll, have, we'll explain what period it's from, roughly the age of things. What we wanted to know for the, the, to make the talk make sense, really, is basically that the, uh, the youngest rocks in England, uh, or in the UK, tend to be around the, the east and southeast. The oldest rocks are really in the northwest. And so if you take a little transect from northwest to southeast, the rocks generally get younger. And in the course of this talk, what we'll do, we'll, we'll work our way through from older rocks through to younger rocks, and at the same time take a tour of the, uh, of the UK to, uh, to see different, different trackways and different animals of different ages and what they've left behind. So we're going to organize the talk into three different bits, three chapters. The first bit will look a little bit about uh, the, the footprints uh, and the way they interact with sedimentary environments. So that's this is just the basics about what, uh, what these things can tell us, using some examples not far from Hay, uh, just down the road near Brecon. We'll then move on to look at some of the largest and most spectacular trackways that we know of uh, in, the, in Northumberland and Scotland uh, of very large insects from uh, the Carboniferous period, and finish off with some really well-preserved dinosaur footprints that we discovered for the first time uh, a couple of years ago. So, uh, as an introduction, uh, yeah, Anthony will take you up the road to Stannybridge. Yeah. So, <clears throat> back near Brecon, we are, for the next bit of terminology that's kind of essential to this talk, it's bedding planes. So, bedding planes are the layers that you see in rock. And I'm sure you're all familiar with layers in rock, even if you've only seen them in cartoons. It's kind of the stripy bands that you can see marked on here with the white arrows. And these bedding planes are like fossil floors. So they're things that were the surfaces that were around before the rock was rock. See? And these things get buried by layers of sediment, and then you get a new surface, and that's your next bedding plane. And the cliffs that you saw in the previous slide aren't great for actually seeing these bedding planes because they're vertical exposures, and you can't see any of the actual flat surfaces in there. But if you scramble around, then occasionally we find nicer things, even though it's a little bit small and scrappy, but this allows us to have a look at what these kind of fossil floors look like and what was going on on them. So let's have a closer look at this surface. So it might not look like much, might look a bit scrappy and mud-covered, but actually this structure here that you see running down the middle is quite important. And we'll come back to that in a minute after looking at some general context of the kind of things that you might see on these fossil floors. So here's something you might be a little bit more familiar with, these ridges running across the surface here. It's the sort of thing that you might have seen on a trip to the beach. So these ridges are actually fossilized ripple marks. So the kind of things that are formed by waves going backwards and forwards across the surface. And yet you get these, these physical structures forming. You also get things like these, these rill marks. So again, this is caused by water draining and eroding down into the sediment, into the sand, forming these kind of small little rivulets, like you see here. Again, this is the sort of thing that you see, see on modern beaches. And again here, you're seeing these, these round craters with these raised rims. So again, this might not look like much, but actually, this is the record of an individual rain shower. So these are raindrop marks, like you can see here for a more modern mud. And if you think that you can actually get an individual rain shower preserved in the record for hundreds of millions of years, that suggests that the kind of detail that you'll be able to get from these trace fossils might actually be quite important and might actually be quite an accurate representation of what life was like at the time. So going back to the picture I showed you a few minutes ago, this here is a trackway of an animal. And to work out what sort of animal made this trackway, we want to compare it with modern stuff that we see, so like this here uh, from modern beach. And that lets us look at how modern animals walk across the, across the sand and interact with the surfaces they're going on. And then we also want to look at the fossil record to see what kind of body plan the animal might have had and how we can relate that to the shapes that we're seeing in the rocks. So this here, this trackway here was formed by something called a euthocarcinoid. So, 
sort of an ancestor to crustaceans and millipedes. It's somewhere in between the two. And that kind of makes sense from its body shape. It's quite long, like millipedes are. But it looks a little bit lobstery. So it's, yeah. And then from all of this information, when we combine what you see from the bedding planes, the physical structures like the raindrop impressions, the, um, the rills, the ripples, it's telling us that actually these animals were starting to come out onto land because you don't see raindrops underwater, right? And from this, we can start to build a reconstruction of the, the environment that these things were in. So what we're seeing in Brecon are some of the earliest pioneering animals coming out of the sea and coming onto land and colonizing these, these land environments. And this is yeah, a reconstruction of what the world might have looked like 410 million years ago when these animals were first starting to come out of the sea. Yeah, and so that means that we can actually go back to these things that we saw at the start of the talk and really start to work out what these things might be if they're not uh, drowning sinners. And they, uh, it looks like these are actually the, the footprints of these pseudosuchians, basically ancestral crocodiles. When we look at that particular trackway, you can see there's a lot of these little dimple marks on there all over the surface. Well, that's a, that's a slightly heavier rain shower than Anthony's was. Okay? It's basically uh, uh, another rain shower it shows these things are on land. Oops. If we look back at some of the uh, other slabs that come from the same quarry, we see smaller uh, footprints on there associated with these, these lines cross-cutting the surface. This big slab here is, in the, again, in the museum in Cambridge. Again, maybe familiar, but these are these kind of cracks of drying mud, drying mud cracks and rain showers. And it's, it's, this isn't a flood. This is the exact opposite of the flood. And it's not that unusual, really, because if we look at the... Uh, the earth at the time of this, Britain at the time is right slap bang in the middle of this supercontinent of uh, Pangaea, right in a very kind of Saharan desert type environment with a few little ponds and puddles knocking around. So this is the kind of thing that we'll be doing just to show you how, um, how we can interpret the, uh, the ancient rock record. Yeah, so now we're going to go a bit further north in the UK to show you a case study of one of the early environments where you can see how animals were interacting with their surroundings and how that was affecting how they lived and what we can learn about them. So this is Borrowdale up in the Lake District. And as you can see, they've got some fairly big rounded hills, but not much in the way of these bedding plains that we were talking about. And that's actually because these rocks are all volcanic. So you can't see much about them we go, until we take a bit of a closer look. So you see here, this is, a, this is a piece of the rock, and this is looked at it under a microscope. You can't really see any grains in there, but what you can see are small fragments of glass and other kind of igneous volcanic material. And yet what that's telling you is that this is or was volcanic ash that has then been laid down. And actually, these hills are the record of numerous volcanic eruptions occurring over a few million years. And it's the composite record of the, the ash falls and the lavas that have all built up over that sort of time. Unfortunately, if I can get my clicker to work, there we go. Um, we can find some bedding planes if we go to suitable places. So rivers tend to be a good place to look because the water stops build up of soil and things like that on top of the rocks. And so. Yeah. Unfortunately, you also get the side effect of there being lots of biology around, so things are covered in moss and grass. But if we can scrape that off, just, um, then we can get a better look at some of the surfaces. And this surface in particular, you can't see anything there. But when we take a closer look, uh, we can actually see something that might look familiar from earlier on. So you see these, these ripple marks, similar to what we looked at when we were talking about Brecon. And if you look closer, then you can see these things here. And these are footprints of an animal going across, yeah, going across the tops of these ripple crests. And the animal is actually some sort of millipede. So something that's familiar to lots of people, sort of thing we know. And here, looking closer at another trackway from the same, same surface, you can see that you get this kind of branching up at this end. Yeah. And that isn't the record of like one millipede splitting into two millipedes, or one millipede walking one way and then another one going the other way. It's actually just how these animals turn corners. So they probe out with the front legs, and then they shift their body across to the side. 
so we can learn something about, or we can see what the tracemaker was by using known behavior from modern animals and correlating that back to the unique features that we see on these bedding surfaces. Yeah, so one, but one thing about these particular millipede traces that's quite unusual that we noticed is that when you look at these things, actually a lot of them, when you can trace them along, they come up here, and this one, it loops around and back on itself like that. And, it, and they seem to loop around quite a bit. We, this recurs on all of these bedding surfaces. They're always coming in, and they're looping around and looping around. So we mapped some of these surfaces. And again, you see this kind of this behavior where the millipedes aren't walking in straight lines. They're not going from one place to another as if they're scavenging for things. They're, just, they're walking along, looping around, coming off in another direction, and then looping off. So if you want to find modern analog for why animals might be doing that, well, one of the clearest reasons why arthropods walk around and around in circles is that they're not happy. And this is, a, this is a dead silverfish on a beach in Sussex. And you can see that it's basically before it's died, it's walked around and around and around in a little death circle and wandered off. And then it's just eventually expired. Uh, this is a similar thing, OK? We've spent a long time walking around watching in insects die. We, did, we, res we rescued this fly because it was drowning in a, in a pond in Australia. Uh, but you can see it's moving around on the surface. It's not happy. Uh, and again, you, know, you look in the literature, and there's lots of stuff. Ants die, go in, in death spirals for different reasons because they lose the kind of scent of their leader. But generally, animals, in, uh, arthropods, often go into circles and spirals when they die. This is just lifted off the internet, but this is live millipede and this is dead millipede. Okay? You know, they go round and round in circles. And these circles are prominent inside the Borodell volcanics. And if we're trying to think of a reason why we might have so many signals of death in these rocks, well, it's not called the Borodell Volcanics for no reason. And the ash that falls out of volcanic eruptions is so fine that it's, it's the equivalent that if you walk to a beach and you've got sand inside your shoes, that's the kind of size of the grains relative to the actual millipedes that are walking over here. It's really fine. And while it's annoying to go to the beach and get sand in your shoes, it's a little bit more annoying to get really fine particles inside your exoskeletons and chewing up your joints and ligaments and clogging your lungs and your digestive system. Okay? This isn't a very nice place for animals to be living. And actually what we're seeing is this record of lots and lots of millipedes in shallow waters very unhappy about the kind of background ash uh, that's going on. There's a, it's kind of a prehistoric Pompeii trapped inside the, uh, the lake district. Okay? And so what we'll do now is that now we've got a background about how to, what, we, what we're looking for in these rocks. We're going to move north and look at some kind of insects that might be uh, a little bit bigger than, than the, or arthropods that are bigger than we're used to. And the rocks we're looking at here are all Carboniferous in age. So the rocks before they were Ordovician. This is a couple of hundred million years later, 100 million years later. And what's gone on on Earth and in Britain since then is that basically things have evolved. The Carboniferous is this time of these big dioramas that you see in museums of, of uh, coal age forests. It's the, it's the time that we see coal, coal deposits in the UK. And in places like this, in Fife, uh, these large tree stumps occasionally on beaches. Okay? This is a, this is a, a 350-million-year-old tree stump that almost looks like it's been locked down and chopped down recently, but that's the, the base of a tree stump. And the effect, the side effect that we need to understand about what these plants are having is that if you've got a world that suddenly has loads and loads of plants, the atmosphere doesn't go unchallenged. And what's happening at the time is we're getting lots and lots of oxygen in the atmosphere. And if you plot it the way people have interpreted what's happened to atmospheric oxygen through time, the Carboniferous is kind of a high point. And if you've got a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, that means that animals can either grow bigger and succeed uh, because the oxygen is available, or they grow bigger and succeed because if they don't, then the oxygen will kind of uh, poison them when they're in a kind of larval stage. So uh, we expect to see bigger trace fossils uh, at the Carboniferous. And we do. So this is an example from Fife of one of the consequences of this, this high oxygen, these giant animals. So I'm going to need to explain what you're seeing here, because it's possibly not the most clear. So this is the base of a bedding plane, like we were talking about before. But this has been tilted upwards by, by tectonic action. And what you're seeing is you've got this groove that runs along it, and then you've got these marks down the side. And these, this is the trail of a giant animal. And you can see just how big it is from me standing at the side of the picture. It's at least half a meter wide. 
And the sort of animal that's making this is kind of one of these sea scorpions, these eurypterids. And these things were huge. Um, these, this is the biggest trail that is known that's uh, to have been created by an arthropod that's in the rock record. You can see it's got this tail drag mark down the middle, and then the footprint and paddle marks from where it's been moving its limbs to get across the surface down the side. And, sorry, can you click? Oh, no. No, we're both stuck. Both clicks are done. I'll move over here. It's all good. Oh, no, we're back. So, we also see other uh, large traces from Fife. So, if you look at this surface, you can see these two these grooves running along here. I think my thing is totally dead now. If you can point at it. Oh, there we go. Yeah, and if you take a closer look, then you can see that actually it's two kind of parallel grooves running along the surface. And these are vaguely similar to the sorts of things that we're seeing in Borodell, um, where you've got these kind of arthropod millipede trackways. But this is kind of more merged together from the limbs working through the soft sediment. And as you can see, it's, yeah, it's two trackways that look like they've been kind of superimposed on top of one another. And this has been interpreted by some people as a, kind of a giant millipede mating trail. However, having unfortunately watched some videos of large millipedes mating, I would not recommend that to anyone in the audience. I mean, uh, this, is, this is very much not how it happens, as you can see. Um, and so it's more likely we're seeing one animal walking across the surface and then another one kind of happening to follow a fairly similar route shortly afterwards. And if we go around the area in Fife, we actually see that it's kind of crawling with these traces. So there are loads of these giant millipede trackways all over the place in this part of Scotland. So we see yeah, here circled, and then go across the middle of most of the other slabs, you can make out some of the individual footprints by the animals that have been walking around here. And the scale bar there, you can see in the bottom picture, that rule is a meter long. So these are big animals. These are getting off a half a meter wide. And yeah, not the sort of thing you want to bump into. And we also see these trackways in other parts of Scotland. They actually seem to be reasonably common up there. So looking at a famous one at Arran, uh, you can see, again, it's a big animal. It's about 40 centimeters across. And you can make out all of the individual footprints on this, similar to what we saw with the, the Borrowdale trackway. And it's not just. Scotland and the UK, where we find these things. This is a reconstruction from Canada, from a museum, of the tail end of one of these animals, based on trackways from kind of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick area. But unfortunately, most of what we know about these animals has just had to come from the trace fossils, because preservation isn't very good, and so there isn't much in the way of body fossil material, until yeah, so it's a slight deviation from the kind of trackway side of things. But we were up in Northumberland last year looking for similar trackways and, and recognised that this block of rock here uh, was new on the beach. It had recently fallen from up on this top of this cliff here. So we walked over to it, and this little cleft inside the rock, you want to envisage now the rock is basically split along a bedding plane. And on both sides of that bedding plane, on the one side we see this, this is... Uh, well, yeah, this, is, this is basically a millipede. Okay? This is the back end of a millipede. These are these individual tergites, the body segments, and these are the little, uh, the little bits off the side of the body. Okay? So this is its back, and this is the side of the animal. When we look on the opposite side of the rock where it's split, we saw, you can actually see the curvature of the back quite nicely there. It's basically a massive millipede curled round inside a rock, and there's a, a human hand for scale. Okay? So big thing, we, uh, we've actually gone back since got permissions and have collected this thing before the sea took it, uh, went at it with a, uh, a power drill. It's a lot harder to get a big millipede out than it should be. Uh, but we got this lump rock. And unfortunately, with a, a water bottle for scale, it doesn't look as impressive. But that's, that's about 120 kilograms of rock, which takes four people quite a lot of effort to lug up this cliff. <laughs> and then uh, we, we did fine with it in the car until we got back to Cambridge and hit a speed bump and, and almost uh, knocked the bottom of the car off. But, they, but generally, it's fine. Uh, we've got these two. These are the two things now back, ready for description. What's interesting about it is that it's the only, well, 
These little reconstructions and these little pink marks show the only known Arthur pleura, which is this type of millipede, fossils in the world. And two of them were discovered from Germany in the 1930s. There's been no new material anywhere else in the world since. And I say this thing hasn't been described yet, so you're getting it, uh, it, it explained for the first time here. But basically, it's the only large body fossil in the whole of the UK, even though we see these trackways and individual parts of this or fragments of this stuff uh, across the UK. But the, the significant thing is if we look at the largest trackways from around the world, only our millipede is actually big enough to make these things. So we've actually finally got the, uh, the culprit for making, or the, the species culprit for making these things. Uh, and if you want to see just how big it is, this is, this is, this is high technology things taken last Friday in the office. Uh, <laughs> there's the rock. Uh, that's the bit we're looking at. It's only basically the millipede's arse, basically. But uh, reconstruct it, and it's this big, OK? It's a, it's a big beast, and that's what's making these, uh, these, these trackways. OK? So this is a good instance of when the trackways are telling us something's out there, we don't really know what it is, but we've actually gone out, and we can, we've now found it, by, by pure chance, admittedly. But um, yeah, so we're going to look on even bigger things now. So. Yeah, so now we're going to go down to the, to the south coast of England and go back to some vertebrates and start talking about some of the dinosaurs that lots of you may have actually come here to listen about. So, damn clicker, back over here. Oh, here we go. Um, so there are dinosaur footprints are actually less uncommon than you might think. So places like the Isle of Wight, cheers down, um, particularly renowned for things like this, it's known as the Dinosaur Isle by some, and they make a big deal of marketing it, and they've got their museums with dinosaur footprints collected from the beaches. And this is an example of one of these dinosaur footprints. You can just about make out the, oh, oh yeah, there we go, thanks. Just about make out the toes towards the top of it, You're seeing these three digits, but it's not particularly clear or well-defined. And so we wanted to see if we could find something better. So we went and we looked at rocks of a similar age in the south of the UK on the mainland. So we went down to Hastings, and as you can see, we've got cliffs here, um, not much in the way of bedding plains, but the area undergoes a lot of erosion. And so in the winter, you get lots of storms, lots of material coming down, and you can see just how big lots of these large blocks are because there's a person for scale, just where the pointer is. Um, so yeah, seeing these blocks that are a couple of meters big come down from the cliffs in the winter storms. And when we go and have a closer look at some of these, you see that there's something unusual on the surfaces. And actually, lots of these knobbly shapes are dinosaur footprints. So there you can see yeah, a three-toed print. There you can see one with some narrower toes and something a little bit blobbier over there. But it's not just this one block where we find things. It's actually across many of the surfaces throughout that have come down. And we're seeing what we've discovered 85 dinosaur footprints across visits of, from a few years. So there's a lot of very, very good material. And the level of detail on these footprints is something else when compared to what we see in the rest of the UK. Yeah, so uh, just to go into the detail in a, in a little bit more detail, there's the, this is the, the tail end, this is the back end of a footprint here. Again, what we're looking at is the cast of a footprint. So we'd have had mud where the dinosaur footprint has gone in and squashed that down. That mud's washed away, but what hasn't is the sand that's cast it like a kind of jelly mold. And so we're seeing these, these kind of inverted footprints, if you like. And on the back end of this footprint, if we zoom in, you can actually see uh, scale marks on the, on the heel of the foot that with these, these li vertical lines coming along, this, in even closer detail there, is basically uh, just an instance in time where a dinosaur has slipped in the mud, right? You see the same kind of stuff if you're walking through mud and you slip with the heels of your boots. This is a kind of fossilized moment of a dinosaur just for a second just going, what? <laughs> as it slips in the mud as it's walking along. And we see loads of this kind of really intricate detail inside there. Like this is uh, further on the same foot. Each one of these is an individual dinosaur's scale on its footprint that has been preserved. Uh, and you can see it in really, really intricate detail. Um, we see other instances too. This is uh, this was on the other slide. You can see this one's got there's four toes here, uh, and these little knobbly bits on the end of the toes. There's one toe missing here, uh, actually two toes missing there. But there's one here and one there. Those knobbly bits we see on other on other uh, toe impressions. They're basically claws. 
Okay, that's a dinosaur's claw print there with the skin impressions around the edge of it. Look at these, some of these in even more detail, and we see actually almost the evidence of the kind of growth lines on a dinosaur's toenail there, right? That's basically just a, a single, it's not an actual dinosaur's toenail, but it's, a, it's the impression of a dinosaur's toenail that's been preserved in the rock record. Okay, so we're seeing some really intricate detail in there. And also, actually, a wide variety of traces, including some things like this, uh, where, again, it appears from the fact it's a similar uh, shape to some of the larger ones where we know they definitely are footprints. This has got three digits here, one digit, two digit, three digit. There's a finger for scale. This is a tiny little baby dinosaur. It's basically not much more than a kind of chicken-sized dinosaur footprint amongst all these uh, large adult footprints that we're seeing. Yeah. So, after a bit more of a close look all along this beach, we realized that most of this material seemed to be coming from one layer. And you're seeing this kind of pale, sandy band that runs all the way across the cliff along the middle. And this appears to be <clears throat> where all of these footprints are occurring. So when you take a closer look, you can actually start to pick some of them out in the cliff. So the little knobs that are coming down on the base of these beds that Neil's been highlighting there, these are dinosaur footprints viewed in cross-section. And so we can start to see where the next ones are going to come out of the cliffs and get a little bit of an insight into the sorts of things that are still in there. Now, we're briefly going to step away from Hastings to get some context before we start talking about what species of dinosaur are making these footprints that we're seeing. So Sussex is the home of Iguanodon. So it's the first dinosaur that was ever described from fossil material almost 200 years ago. Uh, and lots of that material has been collected now and is in museums all over the place, including lots in the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge. And you can see, just reflected in the glass of that case, something far more exciting than small pieces of bone. So the dinosaur itself, the Iguanodon, Fairly sizable herbivore. You can see that I'm coming up to around about his knee. So this is, this is a big animal. But what's more important for us to work out which dinosaurs are making which footprints, looking at the feet of the dinosaur. And here we can see that. So here you can see it's got three fairly large wide toes, a little bit spread out. Obviously, this isn't what the foot would have looked like when it was walking around, because it would have had skin on and muscle and tendons and things like that. But it gives you the basic idea of the shape and where the muscles would have attached, how the foot fit together, basically, and how it operates. And so because Iguanodon and similar dinosaurs are known to have occurred around Sussex, around the Hastings area, we would expect to find footprints that we can correlate with this sort of dinosaur. And we do. So these footprints that you've now seen a few times uh, these are likely made by an iguanodont, which is a dinosaur. It's a group of dinosaurs that includes iguanodont. It's a little bit more like, inclusive because iguanodont itself occurred a little bit like a couple of million years after these trace fossils were found. So we can see it's three-toed. It's got three fairly wide toes that are splayed apart. Uh, you can see the skin impressions and the claw impressions on some of these footprints. And step on this, and based upon the other footprints, we're going to see if we can build up an idea of what the community structure and what the ecosystem would have looked like, which dinosaurs were living where. So the next dinosaur that we know, or that we can interpret from this area, is something similar to an iguanodon. It's this slightly smaller camptosaur. And it will have filled a similar niche. It's kind of a herding herbivore, just like the iguanodons. Um, but this can be distinguished from its footprints from this novel, up in a novel being a technical paleontological term, uh, in the top left of the picture. And this is made by the kind of vestigial big toe of the foot, because most of these dinosaurs, these three-toed dinosaurs, have lost their, their first digit and their fifth digit. So they've got their three middle toes, effectively. And the big toe kind of moves to the back of the leg and then is lost in quite a lot of species, whereas the camptosaur or camptosaurs as a group, still have some evidence of this kind of vestigial digit. And that's what's making this impression. That's how we can distinguish this from the, from the iguanodon. Still looking at some of the herbivorous dinosaurs, 
we see evidence of slightly smaller, more kind of maneuverable, maybe maybe more delicate. They're called considered gracile is the technical term. These gracile ornithopods, and you can see quite a lot of similarities between this footprint and the iguanodont footprints we were looking at before, from the fact that there's kind of these big triangular toes that are separated apart. Here you're seeing kind of less heel impression, but yeah, we're seeing evidence for some kind of small maneuverable herbivores as well as these large herding herbivores. This is where the footprints start to get a little bit different when we start to move into the armored dinosaurs. So you may have heard of Ankylosaurus. So Ankylosaurus is the general term that includes things like Polycanthus, which is a dinosaur known from, known from Hastings, known from Sussex. And it leaves footprints like this. So this is made by the back foot, and you can see the four toes and the, the skin impressions in there as well on some of the digits, claw marks. And these dinosaurs were more solitary than the other herbivores we're seeing, but again, they're still kind of herbivorous dinosaurs. And what we see here is also a different impression making up the front foot. So while its rear legs have kind of four-toed feet, front legs have five toes, which fortunately Neil is highlighting because it's not the most clear in that image, but you can just about see it. it's not got much heel, and it's got five equally spaced digits kind of flower-shaped. Moving on to another species of armored dinosaur that seems to have existed at the time based on its footprint, we're seeing some form of stegosaur. So stegosaurus, again, is something that most people will have heard of, stegosaur being the general inclusive group. And these, again, they're fairly, fairly solitary, filling similar, similar role to the ankylosaur in the ecosystem. Now we see something a little bit different with very different shaped feet. So, this is the first evidence of predatory dinosaurs living in this environment. So you see these are very different to all the footprints we've seen before. You've got these three long, narrow toes, and they're associated with the carnivorous theropods. So this specific dinosaur, Eotyrannus, that's known from the Isle of Wight. And as we said earlier, it's kind of similar age stuff to what we're seeing in Hastings. So we'd expect fairly similar dinosaurs to be living in the area, making these footprints. It's kind of a medium-sized predator, so nothing particularly, particularly big, nothing like T-Rex, but slightly larger than the raptor. Now, these footprints are starting to get a little bit more skeptical. So you can just about make out kind of two digits. And if you look in the middle at the top, yeah, I'm not sure even Neil believes me when I tell him that this is, this is a footprint, honest. Um, but this is something which may have been similar to kind of Velociraptor, where it's got the two walks on the two toes with the one raised claw, as you can see in the picture of the kind of dromaeosaur in the bottom corner. So these are, again, small predatory dinosaurs. But we don't see, don't see many of these types of footprints, but there is some evidence maybe for these things living here. We also have, finally, evidence of some really big dinosaurs. So these don't look like much, and they're not very clear to make out. So I've got some red lines to highlight where the footprint is. But this is something made by a sauropod, so one of the big, long-necked dinosaurs. So the picture is something called a titanosaur, um, sauropod known to live into the Cretaceous, and the sort of thing that might have been making the big footprints we're seeing here. And putting this all together, oh, sorry, removing the line so you can have another look at the footprint. Now, putting this all together, we can get some idea of what the, what the community structure was like, what the ecosystem was like. And it's actually not dissimilar from what you might imagine the ecosystem in some parts of Africa to be like today. So you think you've got herding herbivores with your iguanodonts taking the roles of things like your antelope and your wildebeest. Then you've got your small kind of medium-sized predators like your big cats. You've got your solitary or small family group of armored dinosaurs, like your rhinos and your elephants. You've even got your big long necks for your giraffes. So we're seeing a fairly diverse, healthy ecosystem and seeing similar niches to what we see in a lot of modern settings. Now, sadly, we don't have our own reconstruction, so we've had to borrow this one from the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge again. But what we can see here is that there's a reasonable diversity of stuff living in a kind of river setting. I think Neil is going to talk to you a little bit more about the environment um, these dinosaurs were and what we can tell about them. Yeah, so just, uh, just quickly, just to point out that these 
When these dinosaurs walked over the surfaces of these uh, Cretaceous floodplains, they, uh, they affected the environment themselves in many ways. And uh, we can try and take modern, modern analog from uh, this picture just taken on a, on a beach where human footprints have acted as the locus for crab burrows. Because basically, as you walk along the beach, you can pack the sand, and then it's easier for the, the crabs to actually burrow inside compacted sand rather than loose sand. And we see similar things inside the, uh, the Hastings dinosaur footprints. We see, um, not particularly clearly on this picture, but we do see small little worm-like burrows inside some of the trackways. We see evidence of how the dinosaurs are interacting with their sediment too. In this one, this, this particular footprint is on the base of a bed that's actually quite muddy. And so between these two toes, you can see this kind of gloopy mess of mud. This is basically just a, a dinosaur walking on much wetter sediment. And so the, the sediment's pumping up through its toes under the pressure as it walks through. Okay? Uh, other instances where the dinosaurs are walking on firmer substrates. Um, Here's, a here's three dinosaur toes, one, two, three. And around these toes, you can see this shape in the rock just snaking around the actual toes and shooting off in that direction. That's another of these kind of dried mud cracks, except filled with sand in this instance. And it's just showing us that basically that dinosaur footprint was acting as a puddle. So the rest of the sediment around there was drying off, but these footprints were left in the landscape as small little uh, puddles where water could accumulate going a little bit away from Hastings for a moment, but this is a, a, quite a well-known site in Dorset uh, on the Isle of Purbeck, where there are these, uh, again, these kind of sauropod long-necked dinosaur uh, impressions of small sauropods. Uh, but if you look inside them, and again, the photo doesn't really do it too much justice, but there's a lot of little dimples all the way along this surface, okay? And if you're looking closer at that stuff, you see they're actually small little shells. And basically, the shelly organisms that are actually living in these ponds that have been left behind by the dinosaurs' footprints. The dinosaurs are creating these little miniature ecosystems. We also see that sometimes in cross-section. So this is going back to that footprint earlier on with a nice heel slip impression on there. And we can see when we look at the rock side on that it's had the effect of bending down the actual the layers inside the sediment. We're seeing this kind of... This, so we, we know what to look for when we're seeing a dinosaur footprint vertically in a cliff face. Okay, we're looking for this downturning of, uh, of sediment laminae. Uh, and we see this quite a bit in places. Now, this is, again, not from Hastings, but from slightly older strata in, uh, in Yorkshire, and it needs annotation. But uh, what we're seeing is this, these beds here, you can see they're downturning a little bit like that. They're all downturning around this blobby mess in the middle. That's, uh, that is an individual dinosaur footprint that's coming down and squashing down into the sediments. We're seeing it in, in cross-section. Uh, but what's particularly interesting about the dinosaur footprints here in Yorkshire is that you can see around the top here, there are these, these black marks, these black streaks on the rock, which are highlighted in green there, okay? They're sitting, they're coming out of the middle of this dinosaur footprint that's come down, there's actually some there as well, that's come down inside the sediment. And if we look closer at these things, we see that what they are is actually plants, okay? They're actually fossilised, carbonised remains of plants. Just imagine them for a second. But they're, they're basically, uh, yeah, the footprint is basically created effectively a, a plant pot. It's basically it's provided an area where water's been able to accumulate and seeds have, and, and plants have been able to, to germinate inside there. So, yeah, thanks, Anthony. Yeah, so we've got these, these little roots growing inside these dinosaur plant pots. Uh, and on an even bigger scale, this is back to the Isle of Wight now. Now, again, some of these things aren't the, easy, the easiest thing to recognise straight up, but uh, this is a cliff face, and if you look at it, there are two... We've got flat-lying orangey sediment, we've got flat-lying brown sediment, and then we've got these two kind of shallow U-shapes of red sediment. And that red sediment is uh, mud. Okay, and the shapes that these are, the mud's accumulating in are showing us a cross-section through an original landscape feature. And the cross-section we're seeing is basically a perfect cross-section across a very shallow channel body. Um, and if we want to look for analogue where we see similar things in the present day, again, if we go to Africa, there's plenty of these really small channels, again, about the same scale, where uh, they, uh, yeah, you can imagine that filling it with mud and then taking a cross-section through it, and it would look not dissimilar from that. Well, these trackways are made by herds of hippos. It's basically hippos moving from watering hole to watering hole, flattening the ground as they go through, 
that acts as a conduit for water to run through later on. It becomes a small river channel and then basically fills in with mud later on. So what we're seeing here is actually there's all kinds of little clues about the ways the dinosaurs are affecting their environment, including actually acting as kind of landscape engineering and actually building river systems in the Cretaceous on the Isle of Wight. So, yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of our, our tour of some of the creatures that are making trace fossils in the UK. <clears throat> so we've started... We've started looking at some of the, the Borrodale millipedes, these animals that were killed by volcanoes. We've looked at the pioneers of Brecon, some of the earliest animals coming onto land. We've looked at some of the mammals and reptiles from Cheshire, where we're seeing these animals living in kind of more deserty environments that fit with some of the first described trace fossils. We've then moved north. We've looked at Scotland, and we've seen, and the rest of the north, seen some of these giant trackways starting to see really big animals occurring in the Carboniferous, not just from the millipedes, but also from the Eurypterids, and seeing the Eurypterid body fossil. Then we move down to the south coast, and we've talked about some more giants. We've talked about some dinosaurs. So what we're seeing is that the UK has been home to a huge variety of life, huge variety of fearsome and less fearsome beasts over the last 500 million years. And I'm sorry, I know you didn't want me to say fearsome beasts. But, uh, um, and we can learn an awful lot about what these animals were and how they're interacting with each other and with their environments from looking at the traces that they've left behind. And yeah, I want to say that trace fossils are a useful tool for understanding how ancient ecosystems functioned and how animals not only interacted with each other, but how they interacted with their environments and how they changed the environments that they were living in. And thank you very much. So yeah, we're happy to take any questions. Thanks. It seems to me that perhaps erosion is quite useful for yourself, given what's happened in Northumberland. I mean, do, is that true? And also, do you have concerns about the, the sort of growth in uh, amateurish, amateur and perhaps clumsy fossil hunters? Um, well, the, uh, the Hastings, the Northumberland stuff is true. In, in Northumberland, the, the, the cliffs don't recede very often. I know the area quite well, and that's how we recognise this block was there. So there's not really much to gather there. It's a, it's a, a once-in-a-lifetime bit of luck. But in Hastings, definitely, there the, uh, the cliffs... A lot of, the, a lot of the, the footprints we showed you don't exist anymore uh, because they were taken away by the sea. Those are photos we collected over five years, and the first time we went down there, we saw all these big trackways and thought, well, someone must know about these things. We can't really uh, go around and take these. So we went back two or three months later, and they were gone. Uh, more rocks had fallen down and destroyed them and were taken away. So they're, they're actually quite transient features. Um, and if we wanted to collect them, it would be a nightmare because it's, a, it's already a three or four mile walk along a beach. The rock, the, the rock is pretty friable. It'd be quite hard to get out. You'd need a, a boat and uh, some serious equipment. So yeah, erosion's quite useful. Actually, when we, do you want to say something about the, uh, the, the, when, when these fossils have been found historically? Oh yeah, so the fossils seem to, the record of when these fossils are coming out of the cliffs, when things have been reported from the area, seem to be on kind of like a, some 20 to 50-year timescale. There are kind of regular reports going back to the early 1900s. And what this seems to suggest is that you're getting patches in the cliff or on the old or ancient surface, on the ancient bedding plain, where dinosaurs were walking about, and then patches where you're not seeing any, any traces at all. And all the intervening period where there's no record of any footprints coming down, these are recording the parts of the parts of the surface, part of the Asian environment, where the dinosaurs weren't really walking. So it suggests that these things were walking about maybe close to the river channels, and then we're seeing less good preservation of the footprints in the other areas, so no one's finding them. Someone with a microphone there. Um, so on the, like, large centipedes um, up in Northumberland, um, how they got big by the oxygen. Um, firstly, how long was the time scale of like the spike in oxygen levels? And secondly, um, 
with climate change and maybe like declining oxygen oxygen levels, would there be a chance that like animals would get smaller? Um, that's a good question. The, uh, the, the spike in oxygen is about 20 million years in the middle of the, the, the Carboniferous. Basically, there's a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, and then it starts sinking back down, and there's a, a number of different factors that, that conspire to bring that down. Actually, things remain quite big for a while after that. Um, so if there's, a, if there's a current change in the atmosphere, in the oxygen levels, and the oxygen uh, is depleted, then yes, we'd expect to see some broad signal of that over a much longer time period. But we might have to wait another 300 million years before we could pick out what that signal is, because the, the time period is so big that we're looking at. So that's the, yeah. um, could we just uh, concentrate down for a minute on the period of time when animals were coming out of a marine environment and onto the land? Um, given the evidence you've seen from the trace fossils, are there just one or two animals doing this to start with? Or within a few million years, are you seeing quite a lot of animals all doing the same thing? Well, this is Anthony's PhD topic, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here all day then. Oh, yeah. No, I've got another 40 minutes of talk there. Um, no, so, actually, it seems like early on, you see a couple of different of like a very narrow range of things coming onto land, these kind of doomed pioneers that are happening at a similar time to when the Borrowdale trackways and earlier are coming out, where we see things that are coming onto land, making footprints, but not establishing communities. So it's almost failed experiments, if you want. But then if you scale forward to the end of the Silurian, start of the Devonian, about 425 million years ago, uh, there we start to see lots of different things all coming onto land in the same time in lots of places worldwide. So instead of having one kind of crucible of terrestrialization or a few things doing it and then nothing else doing it for a while, actually we're seeing lots of different behavior all starting to appear on land worldwide together. Yeah. Just a quick follow-up yeah. to that. Um, is there any evidence in the fossil record as to why that was happening over that period? What, what was getting... What, what was influencing these animals to move onto land for the first time? So there are a few different suggestions, but I think one of the best ones is the rise of kind of the large predatory fish. So in the, towards the end of the Silurium, it's when jawed fish first expand into reef environments. So you're seeing a massive increase in predation and the environment's getting a lot more hostile for a lot of the animals that are living there. So you're getting this enhanced pressure to find somewhere else to live where they're not being preyed upon so heavily, and it might be forcing them onto land. Well, that's a stick, but there's also the carrot of there being lots of vegetation for the first time as well. So, yeah. Thank you for that. found it really interesting. I was wondering what were your favourite places for finding the traces within the UK, and also what were your first discoveries? Ooh. Go ahead. <laughs> so, my favourite site has got to be the Hastings one, just because the some of the footprints that we've seen and some of the footprints we showed, the detail is just nothing like I'd ever seen before. Um, but my, the first trace fossils I went to see, oh, it's probably on an undergraduate field trip near Bude um, in Devon. And that's a place that's worth going. It's got huge folds, um, folded rock along the cliffs, which is quite striking on itself. But some of the surfaces are covered in small kind of fish trails where the tail of the fish has wiggled back and forth across the mud as it swam along, and you also see kind of small horseshoe crab tracks in there as well. So that's a, that was my, probably my first introduction to trace fossils, and that's another good site that I'd recommend. And the, the Fife Coast is particularly good for the, for the trackways as well. That's a, we only went there for the first time last month, and actually... This month? This month. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's just trackways everywhere. It's impossible not to see them, so that's a really good place too. Yeah. And I can't remember what the first trace fossil I found was, I'm afraid. <laughs> How do, you long, how do you know how long ago the fossils origi originated? Well, the, uh, so the, the map, of the geological map we've got of Britain is built up from lots of different angles. So there's, it's really hard to really directly date things. You need certain minerals inside there with certain elements that you can work out. So 
the, the volcanic ash, that's actually really good. So you can actually get a pretty much a direct date on how old those things are. Uh, and the rest of it's just a massive jigsaw puzzle. You basically find rocks, you know how old they are, map them against other rocks, work out what's stacked against what, and then compare them with rocks of other ages. So the, the stuff in, um, in Sussex, you can compare with stuff in France on the other side of the channel. And it's basically a massive global jigsaw puzzle to try and work out roughly when these things were occurring. But yeah, it's quite a challenge. Thank you, that was really interesting. Uh, this is more, this is a kind of statement and a question. So I'm looking for the sleuth in you. Uh, some friends of mine in Cheshire uh, found that they had, uh, in their drive, they had dinosaur prints. And so Manchester University looked at them and were going to investigate them further, verified that they were dinosaur prints. My friends went away for the weekend and found that somebody had taken up their drive completely and removed all the slabs and the prints. So I'm just wondering, who steals the dinosaur prints? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. I know there was something on Sky when there was a report of all the dinosaur footprints there. There was a, um, some vandalism and some theft of the prints from around there. And again, with some of the other large trackways that are more famous, private collectors that uh, get the tools and go down and take these things, and it's terrible, really. I, I feel very sorry for your friend in their drive. So, oh, yeah. What's the actual difference between ammonites and amylites? Because I know that they're both similar in structure, but so they've got different outer shapes. It's not about trace markings, but it is fossils. So yep. I thought you might know. Yeah, so you might be thinking of ammonites and ammonoids. So ammonites are a more specific, narrow group where you're seeing this chord shell. And the thing that defines it as a specifically an ammonite is how the different segments of the shell join together. So they've got these kind of zigzaggy suture lines, which are how the chambers interlock. And ammonites have very specific, very complicated sutures. Whereas the other, other types of ammonoid, which include things like they're called goniotites, have much more, much more simple sutures, basically. So it's how the different chambers lock together uh, is what differentiates them. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, sorry, I'm up at the back here on the, your right. Um, yes. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, the atmospheric oxygen content. Are there any trace fossil things, perhaps the, the raindrops or the, the ripple marks that might give any clues as to what the atmospheric pressure was at the time that they were made? So there is, uh, hasn't been looked at for the, the Carboniferous, but in particularly old rocks predating any kind of fossil evidence, people have tried to infer the, 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 the pressure of the atmosphere from the, the size of the raindrops, suggesting that they were different sizes to younger raindrops. Uh, and, this, and likewise with ripples, they've suggested that there may have been a time when the atmosphere was so different and so thin that uh, ripples couldn't form because water was too, wasn't viscous enough. So people have looked at this thing in deeper time, and every time they suggest it, it kind of gets shot down by the fact that you can just walk on a beach in a different type of rainstorm, and, they, and you'll see that the size of raindrop imprints are different. There's too, there's arguably too much confusion from the the wind patterns and the, the specific kind of uh, well, the particular kind of uh, weather conditions at the time to, to really tell that with any great accuracy, unfortunately. Um, fascinating talk, and, and it's amazing the detective work and even uh, psychology of these ancient beasts. Um, um, millipedes, sea scorpions, um, horseshoe crabs, these are creatures that haven't changed very much in millions and millions of years and yet others have. A any ideas about why? Um, yeah, so yeah, millipedes in particular are something that have been fairly similar since they first emerged in the of what or Ordovician. Um, I guess if you're doing something that works, why stop? But things like horseshoe crabs, I know uh, their niches seem to have narrowed, and similar with uh, sea scorpions actually went extinct. So we're not seeing a huge number of species that have remained 
fairly consistently the same. Most things seem to have either changed quite a lot to adapt to the changing predation pressures or just gone. But yeah, millipedes are an example of something which seems to have stayed, uh, remained fairly similar, apart from their brief excursion to being enormous. So were these uh, giant millipedes vegetarians, and did they have any predators? So there's one partial body fossil from Scotland that appears to have some plant material inside it. Uh, and actually, it's not 100% certain. I so say this is the only l big fossil that's been found. So there's all kinds of questions that people have asked about this so far. Uh, like, you know, w were they capable of living on land under the air? Or were they kind of semi-subaqueous? Could they support themselves? Uh, what were they eating? Were they predatory? Were they, you know, were they herbivorous? There's a lot of unknowns about it. And um, at some point, we should probably have a look at it properly rather than using yeah. it as a doorstop. <laughs> yeah, and the problem's compounded because none of the body fossils that are known of it actually have the head. So we have no idea what the mouth parts would have looked like, and that would be a good way of telling actually what sort of things this animal is eating. But until someone finds a head of one of the giant millipedes, we might not know. So you can't go to the, back to the same cliff and see if the head end is stuck at the top of the cliff? We've, we've looked. Yeah. Thanks. One last question. Um, quite a lot of the um, like things you found are all really near to the coast. So would the animals have like ventured further in to Britain, or would they have just stayed on the coast? Yeah, they are. They're, we find them on the coast mostly because that's where we find these bedding planes. Because if a cliff falls down, we get lots of blocks, and we can see these bedding planes quite well. Um, there are quite a few well-known ones from quarries inland. So they're, they're not actually, a lot of these things when they were deposited, they weren't actually on the coast at all. They were often in the middle of continents. The, the, the tectonic makeup of the world has changed and shifted back and forth. So it's kind of an illusion. It's, it's, and it's partly because it's quite nice to go to the beach and look for these things. <laughs> so, but yeah. Great. I think we're being told to, uh, yep. told to stop. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.